MSW Media. With over 500,000 Americans dead, COVID is slowing down, but it's not going away. Where do the next six months hold? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but today she's not able to join us, so I'm going to bring in our guests momentarily. But before I do, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So I've, I actually struggled a little bit uh, with thinking about the topic for this week. Uh, if any of you follow me on Twitter, you know that this has been a week that hit my family hard because my father uh, was in Texas caught by um, the failure and crisis down in that area. But I think this is a, an important week to focus on COVID. And there's a few reasons for that. One is we just passed half a million people dead in the United States, which is just an, a horrific number. And I think punctuates the fact that COVID-19 is defined this past year. It continues to impact our lives. And there are raging debates right now over, over how we should be distributing vaccines, who should be getting them, why we have racial and socioeconomic inequities, and what we should do about schools. And so what I decided to do is invite one of the best infectious disease doctors I know, Roby Bhattacharya, who is not only an infectious disease doctor, but is a professor at Harvard Medical School, to talk about COVID. Uh, he's treated COVID patients uh, you know, during the height of the pandemic. Uh, he has done his own research in his lab, and he can talk to us from both perspectives about what we should be doing in the coming months, some practical advice, what, you know, how vaccines are going to be distributed, how safe they make us, what we should make of the variants, what we should do once we're vaccinated, what we can do once we're vaccinated. Lots of good practical advice. So now let's get to Dr. Roby Bhattacharya. So I know, Dr. Bhattacharya, you're an infectious disease doctor. What do infectious disease doctors do when there isn't a global pandemic? So ordinarily we help, um, you know, on the inpatient service, I'll help them, uh, the medical teams manage patients with complicated or difficult infections that they need help with. So patients will be admitted to their service. Um, and if they need input on a pneumonia or an antibiotic resistant infection or HIV or something like that, any, any infection that might bring a person to the hospital, they'll give our service a call and we'll help. Um, you know, in the outpatient setting, we often take care of HIV, manage HIV as a chronic illness. Um, we'll manage people who need to be on long-term antibiotics, things like that. But um, this past year has been obviously completely different. Um, it's what we train for, but it's not something, you know, we, we've not faced something like this in a century. Wow. Wow. So t tell me, how has your life changed in this past year? I imagine you've gotten incredibly busy. 
Yeah. So, you know, my, my specific job is actually has has been and, and remains a balance between clinical care and research. I, I have a lab where, you know, until a year ago, I would have said I mainly study antibiotic resistance. And, you know, all of us um, have had to, to do what we can to help support efforts on COVID. So um, I was first in I my, I had an inpatient block, you know, m much of my time is spent on research, but I was uh, on the inpatient service um, April 1st through 14th of 2020. And I got assigned that back in October before it was ominous at all, before we knew anything. Uh, but it turned out that that was just at the peak of the surge in Boston um, and one of the earliest surges in, in the U.S. And so it became throughout the month of March when I saw what was coming, it became just everything that I did uh, personally and professionally was just to learn all that I could about this new illness. It was kind of indescribable to see um, a virus that had infected its first human maybe three months earlier, just take over our hospital. Um, you know, Mass General is a, is a thousand bed hospital and half of our inpatients um, at the time that I was on service had COVID. Uh, we had to create five new intensive care units and, uh, that's, I've never heard of us creating a single one before, but in the two weeks that I was on service, we created five. And you know, intensive care medicine is about as complicated as medicine gets anywhere in the world. And to think about just sort of building that on a shoestring in a matter of weeks is, is just incredible. Um, and yet that is what this has shown the, the ability to do, right? It can take down healthcare systems and it, it very nearly took down ours. I think we swelled to absolutely the maximum capacity. And the other thing that stood out to me about that time was how little we knew about this. Um, and, you know, as much as we've learned in the last year, and I think we've learned faster than I've seen, you know, scientific knowledge gain about any subject. Um, as, so as much as, we, as we've learned in the last year, we still don't know a lot. But boy, back in April, it was a helpless feeling um, seeing people who were previously well get sick, people, people who were previously well die um, and not having a great understanding of why. Wow. Well, how, how have things changed in terms of patient care? So we now know a little bit more about some interventions that we can make to help uh, patients with very severe COVID um, have a better chance of surviving. So uh, we know that there's some antiviral medicines, one called remdesivir, um, some antibody therapies uh, that if given early enough seem to help people get better uh, faster. The, the biggest surprise to me, honestly, and when I, first, when I was practicing in April, we did not know that this yet, is that um, a, a simple immune modulator called dexamethasone, so a kind of corticosteroid, um, actually helps the sickest patients uh, to, to have a lower risk of dying. And, and I want to be clear uh, for your audience that that's not something that anyone who's not hospitalized should try. It actually is likely to make things worse if you're in the early phase. Um, because it's immune suppressant. But it, we've learned that it, it reduces the risk of death by up to 30% in patients who have really severe COVID. So we know a little bit more about what will work. And we know, actually, we've learned a lot, unfortunately, about what will not work to affect the course of COVID. Um, we also know that supportive care and honestly, just providing oxygen um, in an appropriate way, whether that's through um, you know, through a nasal cannula or through a face mask or even through mechanical ventilation if, if patients get sick enough. We know that helps and we know that keeping, just keeping patients alive, that there is a, you know, a reasonable chance that people get through this on their own. The other thing we know is that there's a tremendous amount of variability and we've just been able to describe this better, right? So most people, and I actually think this, I wouldn't have predicted this a year ago when this started, how, how much trouble this would cause in our society, but the 
as much as this has the ability to bring down healthcare systems, it's so variable that everyone knows someone who had COVID and it wasn't such a big deal. And so you have to be willing to accept stories. Of, you know, you're more likely to know someone who didn't have a bad case than you are to know someone who had a bad case. And yet if 1% of people die or 0.6% of people who get this die, that is a tremendous number given how contagious this is. And so that plus the sort of atmosphere of, of motivated reasoning, shall we say, um, around how to manage this has caused just a tremendous amount of trouble. Uh, I would have been more scared of, of a virus that had a much higher fatality rate, but in some ways this has been just a sweet spot that's been so difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. I imagine a virus that has a very high fatality rate probably dies off very quickly, right? Because it kills the people that, that have it. Right. So, I mean, it, yeah. So getting into the sort of evolutionary trajectory of viruses, something like Ebola, that is kind of how it is. It burns fast, but it burns out relatively quickly. Um, you know, and it depends a little bit about when it transmits compared to when it um, makes people ill. So HIV is a counterexample where it is universally fatal if untreated, but since it takes so long to get going, it, it actually spreads around, you know, it has spread around the world. Um, but you're right, something that's respiratory and fast, but killed quickly, it would, A, it would get our, there would be less debate about what to do, and it would probably be easier to contain, whereas this was just in that intermediate spot. And again, I, I think I wouldn't have predicted how, how much of a problem that would cause. And I actually think some of the political events that you think about harder than I do. Uh, it just played right into that environment. Well, absolutely. Uh, and I, I, I won't get in too much into that topic here, but I yeah. think our listeners are that. aware, <laughs> are aware of, of a lot of that. I, I will say that a lot of the topic now for folks is vaccines and, you know, for a period of time, there was some questions around the, the vaccine. I think during the Trump administration, there was a concern about vaccine development that is largely dissipated from people's minds um, that I have seen, at least the people who are listening to this podcast. I think people are more concerned about distribution and are having trouble understanding why we haven't gotten more vaccines into the arms of people. Can you can you explain what the challenges have been there to the best you know? Sure. And and just so that an ID doc on your podcast says it out loud, these vaccines look amazing. Um, and I know that your, your people know that, but spread the word, right? Every chance I get. Um, it just this is the, the it's, it's a dream result. I literally remember where I was when I got a text alert at something like 615 from the New York Times and, and tears came to my eyes when I saw 90% efficacy for the, I think it was 94% from the Pfizer vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just amazing. So why is it so hard to, to get them distributed? I think it's just the scale. Um, and, and the fact that there is currently a raging pandemic means that we want to get that scale implemented as fast as possible. And, and honestly, I think it's just logistics and, and, and hard work of trying to get shots in the arms of 300 million Americans of 7 billion humans as fast as possible. It takes time. And it takes time also because th these aren't existing doses of vaccines, right? So everything has to go right, right? There needs to be manufacturing and supply chain. Some of these need to be frozen. Each one has different storage conditions and thawing conditions and administration. And then so I, I really don't think there's there is magic to it. I think that it's it's a lot of hard, diligent work from logistics that is being recreated at every in every state around the country and every country around the world. And that takes time. And it is really frustrating. It was you know, I was just last on service a couple of weeks ago. And while in a lot of ways it, it was. You know, we know, we know so much more about this disease than we did that thinking back to that first time last April that I was on. 
on the other hand, I was watching people die of what is a fundamentally a vaccine preventable illness now. And that's wow. really hard. That's really hard to take, you know, but, but, you know, just hoping that we, we can't just simultaneously vaccinate billions of humans, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans. It, it, it takes time and, and things have been speeding up, but, um, but really I think it comes down to logistics. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I think there have been, there has been some variability, obviously, first of all, within the United States, right? We have States like West Virginia vaccinating a much higher percentage than, uh, you know, other States. Uh, and then we have, in you know when you look internationally states like israel uh vaccinating a higher percentage than other countries is there something we can learn from the states or nations that are uh, that are vaccinating at a higher rate than others one thing we can learn is how well these vaccines work by studying by just how effective they are by looking at say infection rates in israel and just in the last week or two there have been some really interesting studies that show um for instance, Israel prioritized their over 60, uh, their over 60 year old population to get vaccines first uh, because those are the ones at greatest risk of dying from COVID. And um, and so you can see that although this is simultaneous with a, with uh, you know behavioral restrictions because of a surge, and, and although the whole world is actually seeing a reduction in cases right now, they're seeing a much faster reduction in cases among those those over 60. So it's clear there's vaccine effects. They're seeing a plummeting hospitalization rates from those over 60. So one thing we can learn, and I think that we can use to try to demonstrate to the public how well these vaccines work is just to look at the what the outcomes of their success are. But I think your question was actually about what can we learn about logistics? And so, you know, some of it I think is just that some of it is scale, by which I mean Israel is a nation of eight million people. It's about the size of Massachusetts. They're doing a much better, you know, they have covered their country much faster than Massachusetts has covered our state. Um, but I think it is also a logistically different thing to try to get eight million doses into people than, or sixteen million doses into eight million people than six hundred million doses into three hundred million people. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, they were able to procure a number of doses from Pfizer that that number of doses exists and they can buy them, whereas 300 million doses still don't exist. And so we're, we're buying things as they're being manufactured. So I think just the matter that we're trying to, you know, vaccinate 20 times as many people or 30 times as many people, it makes it a little bit difficult, more difficult. And I think looking within, within states, it's similar, right? So the best states that I've seen in terms of um, at least distributing the fraction of doses they get are West Virginia, Alaska, and North Dakota. And they're all, you know, three relatively spread out populations, but also relatively small populations. So I think there's a lot of impressiveness about getting those doses distributed across a, a state with a, you know, with a, 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 a very rural population. It's not like everyone's going to be right in place to get it. They've done a lot of things right, but they've also had a smaller total number of, of doses to distribute. And I think that has helped. The other thing I see, though, is that at least West Virginia has employed the National Guard, right? really experts in logistics. I think they they early on recognized that that it was the challenge. And it's not to say that other states haven't, but it has worked out that that has, that has become a really um, efficient system of distribution. I think it is something for other states to emulate and learn from. You know, one thing I think that is drawing increasing concern is sort of racial inequity, socioeconomic inequity, other types of inequity regarding the distribution of vaccine. In other words, in my home city of Chicago, um, the, the, the vast majority of the people who are receiving vaccines are white. They're in downtown or the north side of Chicago. And you're seeing anecdotal stories, right, about people in uh, poor neighborhoods where there actually are higher death rates, higher number of infections. 
being mobbed, you know, the clinics being mobbed by people from, you know, more well-to-do areas. Do you have any ideas of things that we could do to try to deal with this inequity? Yeah, also a tremendously important question and one that has come up, honestly, first of all, at every stage of the COVID pandemic, uh, the way the way that the burden of COVID has been felt uh, on different communities, but honestly, it, almost everything that I can think of in medicine, the next condition I hear about that doesn't hit just already disadvantaged populations disproportionately hard will be the first. first. First and foremost, I think it's important to document. You know, you can't fix what you can't see. And so there's been more of an, you know, it, it took a while to get data about COVID incidents at the, with granularity at the level of, rate, of race. Um, and once, it, once that was available, it became very clear that black and, black and Latinx populations were being disproportionately hit. I think we just need to track that proactively. I think, you know, every state should have a dashboard that publishes at least weekly sort of what the racial breakdown of their vaccinations were. And, and last I've seen, that's not universally done. And I think it's an important part. It gives you something to benchmark against. Um, I think deliberate outreach to communities at, at risk, and I like the way you frame it, right? These, these are com the communities who are being who are getting less access to the vaccine are also the communities that are at greater risk for getting the virus. And that's exactly backwards of, of how you might want it from a public health standpoint. Um, and so I think thinking deliberate, deliberately about where you place vaccination centers, about maybe running through community health centers instead of asking everyone to travel to a centralized location, right? There are trade-offs, I'm sure, with logistics and vaccine distribution, but they may it's worth thinking about whether or not, at what extent that becomes worth it in order to give more equitable distribution of vaccines. Um, I think reaching out to different communities about uh, just just communicating, like how, how you, you know, is, is the internet the, the best way to reach every community that needs to, that needs to be vaccinated? Or do we need sort of multi-pronged approaches, a way to call in by phone? And, and also just sort of how do, you, how do you make it known to different communities that vaccines are available? And then also just how do you go about communicating the success of these vaccines, right? There, there are different populations with different willingness to hear uh, messages from the medical community, from the sort of the, the medical establishments. And I think there's a lot of good reasons historically why why different groups are skeptical. Um, and you know, there's a part of me that wants to say, it's not my job, it, it's not my intent to try to persuade people to do something they don't want to do. But what I don't want to do is just leave it at first come, first serve, because I think that ends up being inequitable. So I have really tried, and I, I, I sort of applaud the efforts of, of many who have tried to just get the word out about why we as medical professionals trust these vaccines, why when it was first available to you know, my colleagues and I at Mass General, there was an absolute stampede to, to get these vaccines. Um, you know, why I got one literally the second day that I possibly could. And the only reason I waited a day is because I couldn't sign up fast enough to get to get vaccinated on the very first day. So, you know, I, I think we just have to go out of our way to identify barriers, to first count, you know, to keep track of, of how these are being distributed, to identify the barriers and then to just systematically approach them. It, it's to prioritize it as a society, right? I think that's what it takes. Um, well, let me get into some of the sort of more medical technical details here. One, one thing that there's been some debate about is the efficacy of the first dose. I mean, you, uh, there, there was some political debate of like, let's just get the first dose in everyone's arms, not even think about or worry about the second dose because the first dose is going to have 
uh, a huge impact. Now, I we've I think there's also been some talk lately that that has that has different that that uh, you have a different answer there depending on whether the person's already been infected in the past. Can you help clear that up? I can certainly try, and please, you know, stop me if uh, ask any clarifying questions that you, that you might have. So I'll start. Um, by saying it's a complicated question, and I don't think there's a clear right answer. I think reasonable people might see this differently, but I'll try to break down what I know. So it was expected based on based on early trials, so phase one trials where they phase one and two trials where they look at antibody levels. And um, it was known that the second dose of the two vaccines that are approved in the US really boosts your antibody levels quite a, quite far beyond what a single dose does. But we did not know at that time what those antibody levels meant in terms of actual protection. But the difference was enough that both companies just said, for our phase three, our really big efficacy trials, we're just going to go with two doses. We know that gives much stronger antibodies. What they found, which was a surprise, at least to me, I don't know if the companies expected this or not, but was that when you looked at the incidence curves, which by the way, are just things of beauty, like People, the people who got vaccine just stopped getting COVID at a certain point. What they found was that point was actually before the second dose. So by about two weeks after the first dose, the incidence really drops off. Um, but everybody in those trials, or almost everybody in those trials, everybody was scheduled to get a second dose. And so all we really know is that from two weeks after the first dose to one to two weeks after that, you're really well protected. Beyond that, Everybody in the trials got a second dose. And so for full protection, we know you need, all we really know is that two doses are very, very effective. But you might extrapolate from that single dose to say, well, at least for a little while you're protected. We may not know rigorously how long that lasts, but it's probably longer than just the week or two that it was studied. And so given that there's a raging pandemic, maybe it makes sense to get all of these doses into as many people as we can to get some partial immunity and then come back with a second dose later. There's pretty good evidence now that a booster dose, um, even delivered later, is at least for other for for certain ones of these vaccines. There's data now that uh, that uh, delaying that booster dose, you still get a nice boost. And that's what we'd expect from immunology. That the real problem is the time in between the first and second dose when you're only partially protected. So what has complicated that more recently is these variants that you may have heard about. So there's just, there's a lot of virus around the world right now and viruses mutate. RNA viruses like this one mutate a little faster than your average virus. And as they do that, most, most mutation, this is like, a, this is just a normal thing. This is what viruses do. But, you know, most mutations either don't do anything, don't make any difference or they actually harm the virus. But every once in a while, you'll have one that makes it that helps it make more of itself more effectively. And then that's going to tend to take over. This happened in a virus called B117, which has was found in the UK and has since come to take over. That it is essentially the is by far the dominant virus that you'll find in the UK now. There's another one, uh, sort of a so-called California variant. There's uh, one called uh, P1 that was found in a town in Brazil. Uh, and there's one called uh, B1351 that was found in South Africa. That, that last one, the one that was discovered in South Africa, is the one that seems to be most problematic for vaccines. So I want to be careful about this to say what we don't know and sort of what and yet what we sort of think. There's been relatively few actual efficacy studies of these vaccines against that virus. And in fact, none, neither of the two in the US have been studied for their effectiveness 
in people against that virus. What we do know is that if you look at the antibodies, they bind that virus less well, specifically that South African, that virus that was discovered in South Africa. That's not true for the virus discovered in the UK. That does not seem to be true for the one discovered in California, but it is true for the one discovered in South Africa. It's about a you know five to tenfold reduction in binding efficiency in, in the lab. And so when you see that and you hear that, well, the second dose really boosts your antibody levels farther, you might think that at this time when there's other kind of variants circulating that might evade an antibody response, maybe you want that second dose a little bit more than you would have if these variants were not around. And so in the end, I think it becomes a trade-off, right? So the way to get the most vaccination to the most people is a single dose and then circle back and get the second one once everybody has had their first. But you run the risk of actually nobody being as protected as you want. And so you know, my personal take with what we know right now is I, I err on the side of wanting to roll out the vaccines the way they were studied. I'm optimistic that we'll get enough protection to protect against all of these variants, maybe not perfectly, but very well. That's my expectation. But I'm, I'm, I have less um, intuition for what only a single dose would do, especially for the variants. So would, we've had a sharp reduction recently in infections and deaths. What do we see? So given all these variants, what do you see in the months, in the year ahead? What People are longing to know when we might see something approaching normal, when, when, when we're going to start really feeling like we're beating this thing. As a practical matter, what, what, what can you tell people if they're trying to look ahead and plan their lives? <laughs> so... Predictions are hard, and 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 you're not gonna you're not gonna get me down, uh, you know, sort of sign, signing anything on a dotted line today. But but I can say what I think. So I, I'm really these vaccines look as good as any, you know, the efficacy data are as good as any vaccines that we as humans have created. I I really believe that, and I, I think that in the in the medium to long term, the way out is going to be vaccinating enough of the population and getting the disease incidence down. And then I think once those two conditions are met then I think life starts to get to look like what we remember. I really think that. I think there, and those two are related. So those are two separate things, right? Vaccinating enough people and getting the population incidence down. Right now, um, we haven't vaccinated that many people and there's still quite a bit of this disease around. It is coming down, but there's a lot of it. And in the, in the short term, it's our behavior, I think, that affects things more than anything else. The, the vaccines will help individuals, but they won't help society until you know, more than 50%, let's say, of a society is vaccinated. But our behavior still matters. And so, like, I've been vaccinated, you know, I got my second dose in early January, and I, I'm still masking in public. Um, and I'm doing that because there's a lot of vaccine around. You know, I have a measles vaccine, too. But if I was going into a room of a measles patient, I would absolutely wear a mask. I'd be fired if I didn't. And it's because vaccines are good, but they're not perfect. And, you know, right now, there's a lot of COVID around in our community. And so, you know, there's a decent chance that if I went about an unmasked day, or at least an unmasked week, I would run it, I would encounter it. And so I'm masking for now. But once the disease incidence comes down, I'm not sure we need to do that. And I think, you know, I, I really think that people are, are very well protected by these vaccines. So the way I see forward is hang in there for a little while, get a vaccine when it's offered to you. It will provide you personally with wonderful protection, more than than I think we had a right to expect so quickly. Um, but, you know, my, my, my feeling is that for public facing encounters, I'd still I'm still masking. Let's put it that way. Well, let me ask you, I'm curious with that. So let's just say that there's a listener who just got vaccinated today and they want to know for themselves, can I take a trip 
Can I, you know, be, you know, just go visit my family? Can I, what, what, how, what kind of activities should they feel constrained from doing if they've been, if they've received both of their doses? Sure. So great question. Uh, and a really important one. So I'd say the way the studies were done, they started count, counting incidents from two weeks after the second dose. And so that's, I think when you want to be, that's when you're confident that you have protection. You may well have it before then, but that's that's the way it's been studied. So let's take it from beyond that point. Let's sort of not try to shave days off here, but let's say you're two weeks from your second dose. You're as protected as you can be. What does that mean? So to me, what that means is that anything you do, you'll be, you'll be about 20 times safer than you would have been before. It's not a million times. It's not even, a, it's probably, maybe, it, you know, best, best, best data we have is you're about 20 times safer. And so what does that mean? I think that has to depend on who you are, you know, who your listener is. Is, it, does your, is your listener an 85-year-old grandparent who has lung disease, or is your listener a 24-year-old who, uh, you know, who's per, who has no other medical problems? I think those are different calculations. Yeah, so I'd say you're, you're 20 times safer, and and that's, that's, that's liberating. That's a lot. It's a hard number to think about, but it changes a lot of equations. And I think as disease incidence go, continues to go down, as I think it will in the near term, um, I think it just becomes safer and safer to do more and more things. And so I would say, if you're willing to mask, if you don't find it a hardship, then you can travel much more safely than, than you could before. It doesn't make everything magically perfect right away, but I think it moves us towards a place where things are better. Um, I can also sort of give give personal anecdotes. My, we're, my, my parents are in their late 70s, both getting vaccinated now based on their age group. You know, they've each had their first dose and are getting their second in early March. We're having them come see our kids. We have a five and a two-year-old. We're having them come see our grandkids three three weeks after their second dose for the first time in, a, in over a year. Um, and we're doing that. They're going to wear masks on the, you know, to the airport. They're going to wear masks on the plane, but they're going to come here and see their grandkids. And we didn't feel good about that trip. You know, my dad has diabetes and heart disease. It, it wasn't, a, it was a calculation we were not willing to make before that we're willing to make now. That's interesting. That's the sort of concrete thing I think people are trying to get a sense of. Those are the difficult choices that a lot of people are going to be making in the months ahead. And, and I think, you know, I think also people have been a little bit confused about what they should be doing regarding masks. In other words, uh, you know, they're not it's not clear to them whether they should be wearing one mask or two masks, um, whether the quality of their mask impacts uh, whether they need one or two masks. Can you help us, you know, understand what the sort of the, the latest science is regarding what we should be doing to keep ourselves safe, whether we're vaccinated or not? Sure, um, I'll I'll do my best to to convey this clearly. So the um, best sort of the, the gold standard, the mask that's going to protect you the best. And and I also want to just a nod to the fact that this has changed. Our understanding of this has changed a lot over the year and the year and a couple months that we've known about COVID. Right. I think this is. Um, the importance of masks on, on, in the daily life. This we're in an, a place that would have been hard to imagine two years ago in terms of how how, how important this has become to us, right? So, um, the mask that protects the user, the wearer, the most is is something like an N95 or a KN95 mask, it, roughly in that order. The N95 is sort of the gold standard, and uh, those are just high filtration masks that uh, that's what I wear in the hospital when I'm going into the room of a patient I know has COVID, um, and so. They, you are less dependent on other people wearing masks if you wear that kind of mask. I, I would again, I, I, 
nothing is a hundred percent, but that's as that is as well as you can protect yourself as as an N95. I'm vaccinated now, but still, when I'm in the hospital, you know, the last time I was on service, when I'm on again in a couple of weeks, I'll still wear an N95 into the mask of, into the room of patients who I know have COVID or who are at at high risk based on their symptoms if their tests have come back yet. Around the hospital, when I'm not going into those patient rooms, I wear a simple surgical mask, which is a bit of a step down in terms of filtration. Um, and it requires a little bit of your of, of folks around you doing the right thing. So with a simple surgical mask, I would be less comfortable being next to a coughing patient. Whereas with an N95, N95 we are. We're, we're next to, and nurses spend all day long, respiratory therapists will spend an entire eight hour, you know, or nurses will spend an entire eight hour shift at the bedside of a patient with COVID with their N95s. And there are some infections, but there, it is clear that that provides a tremendous amount of protection. With our surgical masks, there's also very little transmission within the hospital, but you have to, rem and even though, even though our colleagues will get COVID from the community or, or you know, rarely from patients, but often from the community, and they'll come to work because that's how this works. You don't always know it when you have it, right? So we are exposed in these masks, but we don't, we, we're quite protected, but we have to remember that in a hospital ecosystem, we're all wearing surgical masks and we're all used to it. So we're wearing them well, they're over our nose and mouth, right? So, um, so that is, I'd say a step down, but if you're, if you're doing outdoor activities, then I think a, surg a simple surgical mask, a cloth mask, if you're doing low risk activities, I think those are fine as long as the cloth mask, what I like about them is the ones that have sort of a metal rim. It's all about the seal that you form. And so I have I, the cloth mask I use has just like a metal nasal bridge, right? That I can fold over my nose and I get a little bit of a better feel. That's what I wear to like walk the dog, to go out and, and you know, play with my kids outdoors. Um, when I don't expect to encounter anyone else, I'm able to keep my distance and I'm in the outdoors, which is intrinsically much, much safer. If I'm going indoors anywhere, I wear a simple surgical mask. And if I'm going into a patient room where I know there's COVID, probably if I were going on a, an extended trip where I know I'm going to be in close quarters, so like an airplane flight, in that case, I would probably probably wear an N95, but, um, and then the, um, the other thing to say about an N95 for your audience is that, um, it, they, we are, so to get this level of protection that I'm describing where I feel, I feel comfortable going to a coughing patient's room. Um, I have been fit tested. I'm actually fit tested every year. If my weight changes too much, I get refit tested. I shave much more frequently when I'm on service than when I don't, because they're actually, the seal is dependent on not having facial hair and so, or even wow. stubble. Right. So, so I, uh, you know, you, you want to, I wouldn't feel like an N95 is bomb proof, especially if you've never been fit, but I still think it's probably better than a simple surgical mask, especially if you shave. Um, the other thing to think about is, is eye protection. We don't know this well, but the eyes are mucosal surfaces. Um, and so there is some sort of what I might call suggestive data, maybe not totally declarative, that that covering your, your eyes with either goggles or a face shield, uh, if you're going to go into a high-risk situation, is helpful. So again, when I go into that patient room with COVID, I'm not only wearing an N95, but a face shield or goggles. Um, and some people do that on plane flights. I think uh, no less a light than Tony Fauci has recommended that for public travel. So I think that's a reasonable thing too, if you're sort of unavoidably in a high-risk situation. You know, I, before we wrap up, I'm, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, is there something, I know as a lawyer, there are things that I see in the news or I hear, you know, a lot of people who aren't lawyers talk about that drives me batty because it's just not, it's, just it clearly shows a lack of understanding of the situation. Is there a kind of a popular belief about COVID or things that you see people talking about or see you discuss <laughs> that, that, that is that way uh, for you? Oh man. Um, I think the, th it's a good question. I, I think that honestly, the entire ecosystem of, of, um, 
with of motivated messaging, sort of messaging motivated by anything other than our best understanding of the disease bothers me because lives are at stake, right? So uh, to me, it's, you know, it, it's people taking this less seriously than they should. And, and I guess, or than I perceive they should then, and given what I've seen, right? So, I, you know, the flip side is I've, I've seen the sickest of the sick, but, but I've also spent a lot of time reading about this and seeing what this can do and talking to people who have worked in New York. And it's just, it is a, it is an illness that we that humans have not seen. No, basically, no one alive has seen something that can that is capable of this, right? Sort of, it's 1918, 1919 pandemic flu is the last time we've had an illness that spreads this easily and has this capacity for 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 killing people. And so, the thing I have real difficulty with is people who just don't respect it. I think it 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 is it is worthy of respect, and and it's hard for me to see it is hard for me to see people shrugging it off. Even if I see that it's, you know, their, maybe their dad got it and actually didn't get that sick, even though he's in his eighties, like that happens that actually 90% of 80 year olds who get this will survive, but boy, a 10% mortality is really high. Right. And, um, in that age range. And so, yeah, it's just respect for the virus. I think gets us a long way. And, and I, I, I struggle with, with disrespect for this. Speaking of respect, I think all of us have a lot of respect for people like you who are not helping those of us who are sick, whether it's directly by by treating patients or through research and other means. So I, I really have a lot of respect for what you're doing. I appreciate you taking a little bit of time out uh, here. I think that there's definitely a lot of fear and concern, and uh, hopefully we've uh, we've dealt with a little bit of that today. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Renato. Thank you for the opportunity, and it, it's good to hear it's good to hear you from you again. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity to connect with your audience. I hope this was helpful. Um, and if there are other questions or things I can clarify, you know how to reach me. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 